Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today we get to hear a sermon by Dr. Charles T. Carter, who is the James H. Chapman Fellow of Pastoral Ministry here at Beeson Divinity School, and for many years was pastor of Shades Mountain Baptist Church. He was my pastor. And I actually heard this sermon preached not once, but many, many times, because it is an annual sermon that Dr. Carter would preach every year from a verse in the New Testament, Come Before Winter. Now, Dr. Smith, you know Dr. Carter quite well, and th- this is a great sermon by a master preacher. Tell us about it. I have heard Dr. Charles C. Carter for uh, many, many years. This, for me, in terms of uh, his passion, uh, is the Mount Everest of, of his preaching out of all the sermons I've heard from him. His voice, his passion matches the urgency of this passage. Come before winter, taken from Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 21. There's a significant line uh, that must be noted by the hearer. The beauty and brevity of life's passing opportunities. That's his big idea. He certainly acknowledges Clance McCartney, who pastored the First Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, uh, as the one who stimulated and motivated him to preach uh, this sermon year after year, since McCartney had done that for many years. He walks through the passage. We're accustomed to that. He's going to thoroughly um, acquaint us with the background and uh, what's going on uh, at the time, where Paul is, where Timothy is. Um, it's, for me, an evangelistic sermon. There's a thread of evangelism that runs throughout the fabric of this entire sermon. It's very holistic. It has proclamation for the salvation of the hearer. It has teaching for the maturation of the saint. But it also has therapy for the inspiration of people to be sustained. So it's very holistic. Uh, pay attention to how he systematically walks us through. Any sermon that Charles T. Carter preaches, um, one will always know where they are because he's walking us through the particular passage and giving us noted concepts so that we know exactly what he's talking about. Uh, and then finally, I think it's important for us to see that he offers various reasons based upon Paul and based upon where we are, why certain things need to be done before it's too late, that is before winter. He gives a practical reason um, that it ought to be done in terms of the Mediterranean Sea lanes being closed during the winter. He gives a personal reason in terms of death Death, and also the second coming of Christ. He gives a spiritual reason. He gives financial reasons. He gives familial reasons in terms of marriage and family. And every one of these, I think, uh, is powerful in that he's able to draw from his congregations illustrations, uh, sometimes tragedies, not to manipulate people, but to motivate them to make a decision based upon the fleeting um, time in life. And then, of course, uh, this sermon is going to be very riveting in that he is going to be honest and say, even though we can be saved from sin, 
um, we cannot be saved from the consequences of it. And so he will leave us with that note that we have to come before winter and trust God to save our souls, even though the damage may have been done in terms of what we have done to hurt our bodies or to uh, to hurt society or to hurt family, etc. I think it's just a moving sermon. And I'm, I was moved even to the point of tears when I heard him yearn, uh, in his own soul, come before winter. Do it now. It's a sermon filled with passion, with urgency. As Dr. Charles T. Carter talks to us about the beauty and brevity of life's passing opportunities. Come before winter, Dr. Charles T. Carter. Let's listen. Turn with me in your Bible, if you would, to the little short four-chapter epistle of 2 Timothy. And in a moment, we will begin reading in verse 6. For more than 25 years now, in fact, this being the 26th, In late October or early November, ever since 1967, I made it a practice to bring a simple Bible message entitled, Come Before Winter. And always I like to acknowledge my own personal indebtedness as to the source of this idea. As a young teenage preacher many years ago, there fell into my hands a sermon by a wonderful Presbyterian preacher by the name of Clarence McCartney. For many years, He occupied the pulpit of the First Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh. But even before he came to that prestigious church, in 1915, Clarence McCartney first preached on this text. When his sermon fell into my hands, I was intrigued by the idea, and though I have developed across the years my own approach to the text, I will forever be grateful as to how God spoke through this man, whom I never met, though in 1969 I was able to be in his church. But God spoke through his pen and through his insight into this little phrase here in 2 Timothy 4, and I will forever be grateful. I have literally volumes of letters that have been written to me as a byproduct of the impact of this message to them for the same God who inspired 2 Timothy to be written and the same God who inspired Clarence McCartney to initially preach on the text and the same God who has given me guidance in speaking on it can speak to your heart as he did to mine and as he has done to countless others through this simple passage. It is my prayer today that you will not so much hear the voice of Clarence McCartney or Charles Carter 
ask that you will hear a word from God. If you took all the epistles of Paul and outlined them in your Bible chronologically, in the order in which they were written, the last to be listed, the one at the bottom of the list, the last one we have in our Bible that we know of that Paul wrote is the one from which we are about to read, Second Timothy. Titus probably preceded it just a short time, and right before it, First Timothy. So the bottom three, First Timothy, Titus, Second Timothy. There are only four chapters in Second Timothy. We're going to be reading in chapter 4. We're going to be looking in the text at almost the last verse in this epistle. And I say that to fix in your mind what you are about to read in your Bible are among the last words the greatest Christian who ever lived uttered. Listen as he speaks to Timothy, but also to me and hopefully to you. As it were, he is giving his last will and testament. And he says in verse 6 of 2 Timothy 4, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, verse 8, There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all them also that love his appearing. Notice verse 9. Then he appeals and says to Timothy, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world more than these, and is departed to Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Then there's a word of sadness in what he says. Great apostle, soon to die, founding churches, leaving all to follow Jesus, says, Only Luke, his beloved physician, friend, only Luke is with me. And then he utters some words about his winter coat, about some books that he wanted Timothy to bring, and some parchments. And then he makes some personal observations, and he comes back in verse 21 and almost repeats himself as he did in verse 9, except he changes it just slightly. Verse 9, do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. Verse 21, our text, do thy diligence to come before winter. Do thy diligence to come before winter. Why this statement? in the Bible. Why the appeal to come before winter? There was both a practical reason and a personal reason Paul uttered these words. 
The practical reason was that Paul had sailed the Mediterranean many, many times. He is in Rome. Timothy is probably in Ephesus. He is well aware that if Timothy delays too long in leaving Ephesus en route to Rome and tries to navigate the Mediterranean in the midst of late autumn or early winter, he cannot make it. And so the practical reason, he appeals, come before winter is, Paul was keenly aware, having sailed that course more than a few times in his missionary journeys, that if his young son in the faith did not leave soon and make the journey across the Mediterranean, that in all likelihood he could not sail it in the midst of the winter, and he would have to wait until next spring. And that leads to the second reason, a personal reason. Practically, the Mediterranean was not navigable in the winter. Personally, Paul had a premonition, or whatever that's worth, that he was going to die. That's what he means in verse 6. Look at it. He says, For I am now ready to be offered, that's speaking of his life as a sacrifice on the altar, and the time of my departure, that's picturing life as, as a ship about to set sail. And Paul is actually saying, I feel, Timothy, I am soon going to die. I received a letter just in the last few days from a young girl who has multiple cirrhosis in Gadsden, Alabama. January of 1966, I had buried her father, one of the dearest friends I ever had. And the man who was more generous with what resources he had than any man I'd ever met. And I well remember going to a funeral home in Gadsden, Alabama in December when the father of Ray Wood, one of our members, had died, and I went to the funeral home with my dear friend, Bill Hurd. And as we left that funeral home in December of 1965, he said to the funeral director, who was a friend of his, Tom, you better get one of those, speaking of a casket, ready for me. It won't be long. Here was a man in excellent health, to our knowledge, and in less than six weeks, I conducted his funeral. I do not understand all of that. All I know is some of you know people like that who have had premonitions. Death was soon to come. Paul had that. And he appeals to Timothy. Timothy, if you are ever going to see me alive again, You'd better make haste, leave Ephesus, get on the ship while you can still get across the Mediterranean, and while I'm still alive, and come see me. Do it diligently. Do, your, do it shortly, he says in verse 9, and in verse 21, come before winter. I love all seasons of the year. I would not like to live somewhere that it was the same all year long. Now, some of you who'd like to live forever in Hawaii say, Preacher, you don't know what you're talking about. Wet, cold, damp, winter, hot, 
100 degree temperature in the summertime, man, I could just love it. 72 degrees all year long. You might like that, but for myself, I like the variety of seasons. I love the wintertime with its cold nights, and you can look up at times, and the stars seem like silver-headed nails riveted into the vault of heaven. It's occasional snows. I love the wintertime. I love the springtime. It's the favorite to some of you. Everybody seems to take on a new look and a new lilt and a new lift as buds begin to blossom and trees and flowers begin to bloom and all of nature comes alive in the springtime. I love the summertime. It's longer days and the different paces that we follow at times. Summer's a wonderful season, but of all the seasons of the year, my favorite is the season we are in the midst of right now. Autumn time. Now, not just because it signals the soon beginning of quail season. That doesn't hurt. And my heart begins to beat a bit faster. If you look on the front page of one of the sections of your paper uh, today, you will see a beautiful autumn scene taken right here in our state. Of all the seasons of the year, I do not think you will ever see the natural world any more filled with beauty and grandeur and glory with reds and yellows and bronze and all the other kaleidoscope of God's colors than what you saw en route to church this morning. Take time to look if you did not look coming to church this morning. And as you go home, you will see the heavens declaring the glory of God and the firmament showing His handiwork. I'm told by people who know far more about this than I, a wonderful truth that what you and I are seeing as this wonderful kaleidoscope of colors has actually been there all the time. It's just been covered up with chlorophyll. Those of you who know about this know that deciduous trees, those that shed their leaves, have produced chlorophyll. It's life-giving. And through the process of photosynthesis, the chlorophyll is broken down, and as the days begin to get shorter, the chlorophyll breaks down, and as the green of the chlorophyll begins to subside, colors that have been there all along actually begin to come forth. And we're seeing what has been there all along, but has been covered up with chlorophyll. I kind of have an idea when we get to glory, ain't going to be no chlorophyll. It's just going to be this way all the time. I don't know whether I could prove that or not, but I sure would be excited if it were, but be that as it may. Here, in the season that we're in right now, at this moment, is the season that is noted for two particular things. Autumn, in my opinion, is the most beautiful season of all, and yet, secondly, it is the briefest season of all, the shortest, the way we have it in our part of the country. We have about three months we call winter. December, January, February. And then we all begin to think of spring and Easter time and March, April, and May. We have three months of spring. And then in our climate, we usually have about four months of summer, June, July, August, September. The temperature is often in the 90s. Only two months at most, and sometimes even November truncates autumn. Five, six, seven, at the most, eight weeks. It's the briefest of all the seasons. It's here today, 
and gone tomorrow. You will see it demonstrated before your very eyes within the next four weeks. The beautiful golds and reds and bronze and yellows that you saw en route to church this morning, one month from today, will be stripped bare. You will have swept them up or blown them up or blown them on your next door neighbor's yard. And the leaves will have turned brown and they'll all be gone. And virtually every deciduous tree in this city will be bare, though it's a glow today. A scene of beauty today, absolutely barren, a month from now. And it's that picture I want to fix in your mind, dear friend. That change of the seasons, from summer to autumn to winter, the beauty and brevity of it is a parable of the beauty and brevity of life's passing opportunities. Opportunities that are here today, gone tomorrow. Things that you and I have a beautiful opportunity of capturing today. Things that we can do today. A week from now, a month from now, a year from now, gone forever. Never, ever to return again. When autumn of 1992 has been written, it will never, ever be here again. Those same leaves and that same exact color will never, ever come again. Autumn, right before winter, is a wonderful parable acted out and displayed before our very eyes of the beauty and brevity of life's passing opportunities. I'd like to take just two or three simple dimensions of our experiences and apply this wonderful parable to our hearts this morning. For one thing, in the realm, first of all, of receiving Christ as Savior and Lord, that is not something that you can do just any time you take an ocean. I'm speaking here about the realm of the spiritual realm. Spiritually, there are certain things you can do today. You may not be able to do tomorrow. Now, it's understandable to those of you who are not Christians that I would be less than honest if I did not say to you, you cannot become a Christian just any time you take a notion. I've had people say, well, I'll do it whenever I take a notion. No, you can't be saved just any time you decide to become a Christian. And I want to speak honestly for just a few seconds to people all over this audience who are not Christians. I respect you for your position. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I am trying to motivate you. But I want you to understand right now, at this season of the year, any one of three things could happen and you would never, ever be able to be saved again. Obviously, number one is you could die. And you know and I know that when you do, there is no occasion for any salvation whatsoever. I'm not here to scare you. I'm not here to try to coerce you. I'm not even here to say you probably are going to die. Chances are that you're not. But somewhere in the world today, somebody your age is going to die. It could be you. And when that occurs, the beauty of the opportunity of the door of salvation being open for you is shut never to be opened again. The second thing that could occur, you have even less control over. 
You have some control over the longevity of your life by taking care of yourself, by looking out after yourself, by proper diet, proper exercise. You may expand the length of your years, and I hope that you can and will. But the second thing that could occur, you'd never be able to be saved. The second coming of Jesus Christ. One day at a time that you do not know and I do not know and no one else knows, only God. The trumpet is going to sound. The Son of God is going to come back to this earth exactly as He ascended from the Mount of Olives. He said, I will come again. And He also said, of that day and that hour, nobody knows, not even the angels in heaven. And when that occurs, every person who is lost will be lost forever. The third thing that could occur is, is what happens to some of you every Sunday. And I want to be as transparently honest as I know how. I have seen people in this congregation this morning sit in worship services over the 21 years I've been your pastor, various ones, under deep conviction of their sin and recognizing their need to become a Christian. Some of you have even told me you were disturbed about it. Now, the invitation in just a moment will just be another hymn. It'll just be another sermon that Carter's preached. It'll be just another date on the calendar. For there are people listening to me right now. And you know what's happened to you? You've gotten used to hearing the gospel. You've gotten used to going through an invitation. It's old hat to you now that you hear by the urgency of coming to Christ now. And it really does not disturb you. And I want to tell you, dear friend, you're in dangerous conditions when you have never made a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ and you can go through an invitation and a gospel sermon and not have any kind of compunction of conscience whatsoever. And yet there are people here every Sunday. You can smile through the invitation. You can even sing the hymn. But you're lost as lost can be. And every time you hear the gospel, and every time you go through an invitation, you're one step closer to a hardened, callous heart. Not that God quits speaking. Not that the Holy Spirit quits convicting. The problem, you see, is not with God, not with the Holy Spirit, not with the gospel, not even with the minister. The problem is that your own heart and conscience have been conditioned so many times that that disturbance that once used to come is no longer there. So, I appeal to you, if there is any kind of desire today spiritually to receive Christ, do it. But now let me be honest and say again as sincerely as I know how, Spiritually speaking, in the matter of receiving Christ, I am very much aware. Some of you may not die. Jesus may not come. You may not harden your heart. And one day, somewhere out of the future, conceivably, you will come to Christ. We have baptized in this baptistry, the one of the former sanctuary, men and women, 70, 75, 80 85 years of age. I have done it myself. Not often, but it can happen. I want you to listen carefully to me. 
If I understand what the Bible says, it says anyone, anywhere can come to Christ and be saved. At any time, they're willing to come. And I want to promise you, we're lost this morning. You can come to Christ in time to be saved. Too late to save your health. Some of you as non-Christians are gradually destroying yourself by lifestyle, by personal habits. And you can come to Christ and be saved later in life. But you may die with cirrhosis of the liver by the lifestyle you're living now. You may die with lung cancer by virtue of the lifestyle you're living now. You may die with obesity by virtue of the lifestyle that you're following now. You can come to God in time to save your soul, but too late to save your health. And some of you say, I'll take my chances. Preacher, then let me say something else. You may come to God in time to save your soul, but too late to save your family. Some of you who are not Christians, I'm not asking whether you're a church member or not, whether you've been baptized. I'm talking to people here. You're not Christian down inside. You know that. And you may come to God in time to save your soul. But too late to ever put your family back together again. You see, God can and will forgive any sin you've ever committed. But not even God can remove the consequences of some of our sins. There's some of you living in a marital relationship right now that's anything but Christian. And the problem is you. And you may come to God one day and be saved. But it'll be too late to save your marriage. Now let me get as close to your heart as I know how. Again, I'm not asking, have you joined the church? Have you been baptized? Are you doing the best you can? I'm asking you a simple question. Have you ever made a commitment of your life to the person of Jesus Christ? And you know that if you died right now, you would go into the presence of the living God. It's possible to come to God in time to save your soul. But too late to save your children. Moms and dads, listen to me. Tonight, we're going to have 35 or 40 fine families stand before us and dedicate little children who've been born in their families in the last 6 to 12 months. Wonderful, wonderful opportunities. And there are those of you across this building this morning. You know that your lifestyle and your standards and your values are not everything God would have them be. I don't have to tell you that. In your heart, you know that. And you're not satisfied with it. And one day you plan to do something about it. And I commend you for that. My only appeal is, do it before winter. All over this congregation this morning, their mothers and dads who are Christians and who are in church every Sunday, but I want to tell you, when their children were coming along, they were nowhere to be found. Or they simply went to church occasionally. And they have reared children who went through preschool and childhood 
and even got into teenage years before mom and dad ever got their spiritual house in order. Before spiritual priorities ever began to sink in. And those parents, if they could speak through your preacher this morning, would say to you, young couple with that young newborn child, young moms and dads with a little one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, young parents are here this morning with little children, you can come to God, you can get your spiritual house in order, in time for you to be saved, but too late for you to ever save your children. Let me tell you something. That little boy will only be one year old, one year. He'll only be two years old, one time. He'll only go to school the first day, one time. They'll only be a teenager, one time. Thank God. There will only be a short time. They're here for this brief moment. Gone forever. And I want to say to you, as parents, you have a fleeting, passing moment to influence their lives. And yes, you can come to God after they're grown, after they've gone through infancy and preschool and childhood. Yes, you can come to God in time to be saved, in time to live for God the latter years on earth. Too late to save your children. 21 years ago today, I preached in the pulpit of this church for the very first time, former sanctuary. That night you had the courage to call me as your pastor. Our family went back to Huntsville, and the next Sunday, after praying and evaluating, I accepted your unanimous call, and I read my resignation in Huntsville at the church where we were. Within ten days of reading that resignation, a man whom I'd come to love dearly called and asked to come see me, and he came by for two reasons. One, he had a small gift that he wanted to give our family since we were living, leaving. But more importantly, he said to me, Dr. Carter, I'm so grateful. Dot and I are Christians. But why, why, why didn't we come before winter? I knew what he meant. For I remembered so well going into their home there on Weatherly Road, right next door to one of our fine families sometime earlier, and visiting with them and taking my New Testament out and explaining to that couple how they could become a Christian. They had three boys. And I spoke to all five of them in their living room, and I will never forget what they said, and he reiterated it that day. They both had elderly parents in Coleman, Alabama. They said, we go down there every weekend to look after mother and dad. And when we get through taking care of that, we're going to come to Whitesburg Church. We're going to become Christians. They rejected the Lord Jesus. A few months after that visit, I received a call at the church office one afternoon after school and learned that there had been a terrible automobile accident as some of the kids had been going home from school and three teenagers went to Huntsville Hospital and one of them was the middle son of this couple. 
I made my way down Whitesburg Drive to the Huntsville Hospital, got there about the time they did, went with them into the waiting room and sat there for a little while and then was there with them on either side of me as the doctor came out and said, I'm sorry to say we lost Mike. And one of those parents fell on one of my shoulders and one fell on the other and they wept and I wept with them. Their 15-year-old boy in the prime of life had died as a consequence of that accident. Two days later, I buried Mike. Two Sundays later, right down the middle aisle of that church came this couple saying, we want to receive Christ. We want to be baptized. Don't ask him. Did they still have elderly parents in Coleman, Alabama? Yes. Did God save them? Positively. Were they baptized the very next Sunday? Are they going to heaven today when they die? Yes. But I want to tell you something. Fifteen-year-old boy will never, ever have one more day to say yes to Jesus Christ. And Mike died without ever having a mother or a dad who loved Jesus. And that's why he said, Brother Carter, do it before winter. Spiritually, it's so important. You and I understand. We need to get our spiritual house in order before winter. It is here today. You can come to God in time to save your soul. Too late to save your health. Too late to save your family. Too late to save your children. The sensible thing is come now. Well, let me move quickly to another realm. Not just spiritually is this important. We've been talking last Sunday about finances. Financially, secondly, there's some things some of us need to do before winter. You heard Eric Daniel share with you some guidelines, some principles. I hope you've been thinking about it this week. I'd like to use this sermon as just a catalyst in the minds of many of us. Now that we have heard it, now that we have been probed, now that we have been provoked to thinking, now that we have seen things as they are, both the principles in our own situation, what are you going to do about it? I'm here to tell you financially, there's some things that you can do today, a year from now. It'll be too late. You can't just keep on living financially like some of us do. I hold in my hand a simple rubber band. It's about four or five inches long, wide in its natural state. I can pull that band and stretch it to twice the size. But you're well aware of the fact that if I keep pulling on this band, sooner or later, what's it going to do? Tell me. Snap. And sting my finger so I'm not going to do it. It's going to snap. You can just pull it so far, and you can put so much pressure on it, and it comes to the point, pow! Your life, your finances, are that same way. They can take just so much stress, so much strain. 
I'd like to appeal to some of you financially. Think about it. God says, do something about your finances before winter. What can I do, Brother Carter? Let me be very practical. Number one, determine right now that you are going to get out from under the bondage of credit card debt. Credit cards are not bad within themselves, providing you pay off the full balance at the end of every month. You heard scary tales in Eric Daniels. I want to be a bit more personal. There are people in this congregation right now whose credit card debt exceeds $20,000. I wouldn't be much of a pastor if I did not say to you with all my heart, determine right now, right this moment, October 25, 1992, whatever we have to do, somehow we're going to deal with this situation. Let's do it before winter. Let's do it before we go under financially. Let's do it before the marriage snaps. Let's do it before we get any deeper into this hole. It can be done. Number two, devise a strategy where you can get out from under the bondage of debt. Do it right now. If you don't do it now, it will never get any easier. You're going to get deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in. There is no goose that laid the golden egg. There is no windfall, no bonanza. Quit living in an in a unreal world. The likelihood that you're going to win the Reader's Digest sweepstake is infinitesimal. They'll tell you that in the fine print. The likelihood that an uncle you've never heard of is going to bequeath to you $5 million? Don't hold your breath. Let's deal with the real world, dear friends. All things being equal, you're going to have to pay your bills just like everybody else does. And they're going to have to be dealt with. My appeal is before winter, before the strain gets any greater, before the rubber band snaps, devise a strategy. No one telling you what to do. You do it. Determine you'll get out from under the bondage of credit card debt. Determine you'll get out from under the bondage of debt. And number three. Dedicate yourself right now to the principles of Christian stewardship. I'm not asking you to pledge to God you'll start tithing next Sunday. Some of you probably could not do that. But I am telling you one thing. If Jesus Christ is Lord of your life and you want to be a Christian steward, you can move from where you are to where He wants you to be step at a time. It may take you 10 years to get there, but I promise if you don't start, you'll never make it. Think of where you would be today if you had started 10 years ago when I preached this sermon. Just think. It can be done. Credit cards can be a tyrant to us. Debt can squeeze out the vitality of life. We want to honor God with our finances. Quickly in closing, personally, there are some things some of us need. We've talked about it spiritually, receiving Christ. We've talked about it financially. Let me just slip up to your heart and talk to you about it personally. 
Even in the realm of finances, which are personal. Nobody knows what you're making. But I hold in my hand something I've kept in my file since this time last year. A year ago last week, I visited a man in this church in the hospital. I knew that he was very sick. I didn't realize it would be the last time I'd see him alive. I visited Bill in the hospital. The day before he, he died, he and his wife mailed this envelope to our church office. It was their church tithe on a very meager income. But faithfully, they had done it. And personally, one of the last things he did on this earth, he wrote his tithe check. They put it in the mail. It came to your church the day after. That man went into the presence of God, grateful. He did it before winter. Some of you, personally, need to make some resolutions today. Not just in the realm of finances, but in the realm of personal relationships. In your marriage. Your marriage can take just so much strain, and then it's going to snap. Statisticians tell us that one of the reasons the American family is in trouble is that the average couple in America today spends 10 minutes a day talking with one another. What did he say? 10 minutes a day. I told you you ought to spend more time talking to me. And some of our conversations are about like that. They're not much conversations. They're attacking each other. Don't ask you. Life's too short for that. Could I use this sermon as an arena to appeal to some of the wonderful couples in this church? Would you just take this sermon and from it go home and this afternoon Write your mate a note and tell them five reasons why you love them and are glad you married them. How many did he say? Five reasons you love them and are glad you married them. I want to tell you, dear friend, that could revolutionize some of our homes. Do it! Make a date today, this afternoon, next Thursday night, next Friday night, next Saturday night. Just the two of us are going to do something special together. It's been a long, long time since some of you carved the schedule so that just you two. You say, Brother Carter, does it work? Let me share with you a paragraph of a letter I received a while back. This writer says, my husband and I continue to make tremendous progress in our relationship. I do not take it for granted, and I'm so glad we came before winter. Growth is very painful, but not to face problems is deadly. Did you hear that? Growth is so painful, but not to face problems deadly. Some of our marriages are sick. They can be remedied. Write that note. Express to your mate your love, your gratitude. 
Spend some time together. Let me move to another realm of personally things we need to do. I said a moment ago, statisticians tell us the average couple spends 10 minutes a day. All over this audience, there are wonderful dads. 30 or 40 of them will be here tonight. New dads. Here's an alarming fact. The average father in America today spends 37 seconds. Did you hear what I said? 37 seconds a day. Some of you businessmen travel. You're gone 24 hours, 48 hours, 96 hours at a time. I ought to tell you how your little child spells love. E-I-M-E. You can give them gadgets and toys and candy and cookies and bicycles and cars. But at the bottom line, what they want most out of dad and out of mom, Time. You say, preacher, what can I do? Just take this week and spend some time by yourself as a father or mother with your child. Don't tell me it can't be done. Susanna and Wesley raised 19 children, and she spent 30 minutes every week with every child. It can be done. Now, is it that important? They're your children. They didn't ask to be born. They're here. Wonderful blessings, filled with potential. What an awesome responsibility. Time-consuming responsibility. And if you don't have children, if you're not married, I would appeal to you, do not bring children into this world unless you're willing to pay the price in T-I-M-E time. Daycares and nursery schools and church Sunday school classes can never, ever make up for absentee moms and dads. Decide right now, before winter, before I lose my little one, emotionally, we'll spend time together. Tell them you love them. Pray with them. Dad, just get out on your knees and, and have a short prayer with your little one before you go to bed. Let her or him hear Daddy talk to God. It doesn't have to be flowery. Talk to him out of your heart. Hug them. Kiss them. Me? Kiss? Yeah! You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.